it is about. And, it, and it's key to understanding everything that's in the book. So with that sort of as an overall umbrella, let me, let me make these, these arguments. Because this story begins with un- unbelief. All right, argument one. In the days when the judges governed, with the setting opens at a dark time in Israel's history. It's a history when as ju- at the end of Judges, the last line in Judges says, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So if you're not familiar with the book of Judges, here's what happens. When after the Exodus and the people of God get to the point where they're entering the promised land, Joshua's in charge. They, they enter through the promised land. God gives them, the, uh, gives them commands and, and, and tells them about how they are to operate in the promised land. And the people disobey. They're supposed to go in and conquer the promised land, stay devoted and stay true to him. And Judges is the story of how the people fail to do that. They, they turn away from God and they, they, they intermix with these other nations and they commit idolatry and, 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 they, and they shift. And this is a cycle that you see throughout the whole book of, of Judges. Is this cycle. It's unbelief. They, they, there's unbelief that's there, and God, um, God sends a nation to oppress them. Then the people cry out in the midst of that oppression. God raises, raises up a judge who will give them victory over that nation and turn their hearts back to him. And that turning their hearts back to him is, is crucial. And they turn their, their, their hearts turn back, they repent, they turn back to God, and then there's a season of peace. And then they fall. They fall into unbelief, and they, they follow this cycle. Anybody relate to that? Anybody, anybody struggle with that in your own life? You know, going through those, those seasons? Well, this is on a national scale. This is what's happening through the whole book of, of Judges. And the first judge that you see, Oth- Othiel, I think that's his name, Othiel, he's a pretty good guy. I mean, we don't have a lot about him, but he, he has victory over the first nation that comes, and he turns the people's heart back, and it says there's peace for decades. But it's a downhill battle from there. As you read more and more, as this cycle continues, things just get worse, get worse, until at the very end, the last cycle, the last judge is Samson. And, and if you've been in church at all very long, probably very familiar with the story of Samson, how he did all these phenomenal feats, and he destroyed all the Philistines. But you know what Samson didn't do? He failed to turn the people's hearts back to God. That was the most critical responsibility, and he failed to do that. So at the very end uh, of Judges in this in this cycle. And, and so this is where Ruth finds its roots. So, so it's telling for us when we read books of the Bible, especially small narratives, go elsewhere in the Bible. See where, what else is going on on a larger national level so that we better understand the context for that specific story that we're in. Now, we're not told exactly <coughs> excuse me, when in Judges this occurs, but the overall temperature of, of the nation of Israel is one of unbelief and disobedience in, in the midst of, of judges. Um, and, and so if you, if you have that blanket, you know, sort of history timeline, here's kind of what's going on, and you were to zero in on one little family, this is sort of what that's doing. You know, in the midst of the time of the judges and all the darkness that's going on, here's a story of one family, basically, and what's, what's happening. So the first is that the, the overall temperature uh, within Israel during this time is one of unbelief. Secondly, 
Next thing we learn is there's a famine in the land. Now, you might say, well, well maybe, maybe this story occurs at, a, at one of those times of peace. <coughs> one of those times of peace. Well, the presence of the famine, famine is telling. Because famines, the nature of famines in the Old Testament was that they were, they were judgment from God. They were God's hand upon the nation for disobedience. I'll give you a couple references. Leviticus 26, 3 through 4. And in the Old Testament laws, God says this, If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, then I shall give you rains in their season so that the land will yield its produce and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. See the implication there is? God says, if you, you're going into the promised land. You're going into a land full of milk and honey, but don't think that it's just going to stay that way. Your faithful obedience to me and your, your following me in faith Loving me with all your heart, that will maintain those blessings. But if you step away from that, I'm going to withhold those blessings. Similarly, he says in Deuteronomy 11, It shall come about if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I'm commanding you today, to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart, with all your soul, that he will give the rain for your land in its season. <coughs> Excuse me. And here's the warning. Beware that your hearts are not deceived, that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them, or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will, sh- he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the ground will not yield its fruit, and you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. And the, and the other famines that you see in the Old Testament prior to Judges, <coughs> Genesis and, and even in Exodus, I mean, these, these were the hand of the Lord upon the nations, right? Even King Solomon later, who when he, King Solomon dedicates the temple, what he in, something he includes in his prayer is a request that, Lord, when there is disobedience amongst your people and there's a famine in the land, when they repent, bring rain. I mean, that, his prayer is not that long. And, and so... so so you can tell how important this was and how they made that connection. Faith and obedience and the blessing of the Lord in what he'd promised. And so, again, the time of the judge, it's a context of unbelief and the presence of a famine is an indication that Israel was in a time of unbelief when this story is told. Number three, the structure of verses one and two they present Elimelech's family not as, not as unique amongst the people because you, you have that, right? In the Old Testament stories, you have, you have people who are, are the nation's unfaithful, and then, but you've got somebody who's representative or a family or somebody who is faithful. They're, they're faithful. They stand out as a covenant keeper and, and faithful, sort of like Noah, right? But the story, the structure of, uh, of these first two verses projects Elimelech's family as a microcosm of Israel as a whole. So a certain man from Bethlehem in Judea went and sojourned in the land of Moab with his wife and his sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife, Naomi. The name of his twins were Mahalon and Chilion. So it's, it's sort of as if this were a sitcom about what's going on. You know, this were a, 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 sit, a sitcom in its day. They would be cast sort of as the typical Israel family. If you watch sitcoms, you, you, you know you can, when you watch them and you say, well, this, this, this family is cast as the 
typical American family. That's the way this story is, is presented. Number four. It says that they took for themselves Moabite women and wives. Now in the Old Testament, intermarriage amongst tribes was forbidden. In um, Deuteronomy 7, God says, When the Lord brings you into the land you're entering to possess it, you shall not intermarry with foreign tribes. You shall not give your daughters and your sons, nor so you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from me to serve the gods, to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. You see, Elimelech's family moved at a time when his sons were coming of the age to marry. That's a, that's a crucial time that, that really sets the stage for where the next generation is going to go. And, and they, at best, casually regarded, at worst, disregarded the command, that command of the Lord. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute. They went to Ruth. I mean, Ruth's, Ruth's sort of the heroine of the story, and she has faith. But keep in mind, Ruth's faith is it's a supernatural. It's not, that's not normal. In, in the Old Testament, nine times out of ten, probably 9.9 times out of ten, when the nation, when this happened, when there was a capitulation of, of Israel into the, um, in, into the ways of, of, of other cultures, idolatry happened. That's what was consistently the case. And so this, this story and Ruth's faith just further exalts God's sovereign grace in, in the midst of this. If you, were, if, you were, if you were in this time and you were reading this story in the Old Testament, it, it would shock you that this woman has this faith. And we're going to get more into that. As we move through the, the, the rest of this chapter, we're going to see even more just the amazing aspect of, uh, of Ruth's faith. So they took for them Moabite, Moabite wives. They, they intermarried in, uh, within these tribes when God had clearly said, don't, don't do this. It's dangerous. It's disastrous for you. Don't do it. And they casually disregarded it. Number five. Elimelech's family sought life away from the covenant community of Israel, but they only found death and childlessness. Now, to be fair, we're not told that the death of these three men and the fact that there were no children, don't, don't miss that. There's, there's a 10-year time span. There's no kids. And, and that's what they sought, right? There, there's a famine in Bethlehem. That's a town that means, uh, hang on, I got a reference here. Where is that? It's a town that means here is bread. I'll find it later. I've got it written down. Anyways, they, they left Bethlehem there's famine there. No, no food. No food. We got to find food. Here we hear there's food in Moab. But we're going to go there. We, we're seeking the blessing of life. They want to survive. They want to thrive. And they go only to find death there. Like I said, we're not told that, that that's a direct consequence of their sins. But given the weight of Deuteronomy and Leviticus, and keep in mind, these are, the, these are the laws that precede, these are the things that precede judges in the Old Testament. The, the author didn't have to make that statement, didn't have to make that clarification. It's clear within the context of the story. Now, let me, let me say this 
because I, I think we can come to this and it can be unsettling for this. So I feel like at this point I need to make some, some clarifications. You, you might come to this and say, well, well, aren't we beyond this archaic notion th- that, that an abundant harvest or material blessings are directly related to whether or not we, we appease a deity? I mean, I mean, our culture sort of flies away from that. Aren't we, aren't we beyond that notion? Well, that's a, that's a good conversation to have, but let me plant this in your mind. If, if God is, then he touches everything. And, and to say that, that, that he's not relegates all of those things to simply randomness, to random chance, to say, well, by chance or by, by the working out of just circumstances. And the problem with that is while, while chance can be talked about in probability senses, if you flip a coin 10 times, what are the, what are the odds that it's going to land on heads? 50%, right? We can talk about it in that, in that sense. But chance and, and randomness are never agents of causation. And, and, and if you fall in that line, that's, that's dangerous grounds because that's just, that's not true. That's not true at all. If you have questions of that, I got a good reference for you. You know, talk to me afterwards. Um, but but that's, that's an important thing to, to think on. That's an important thing to think on. If God is, and he is who he says he is in the Bible, then that, then, then that, gives, way, that gives reason for us considering what he says about himself and how he interacts with us. He's not this, watch, you know, this watchmaker God who created everything, sort of left it out there to spin, and he steps back. That he's involved in things. And sometimes that's extremely hard for us to, to grapple with. The other question you might say is, well, wait a minute, we're in the New Testament, right? I mean, all those Old Testament laws, they're done away with, right? We're not, we're not in the promised land. You know, we're, we're, we're beyond this. God, God is love, right? So, you know, why, 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 what, how does this apply to us? Well, it's true, we are in the New Testament, but it's dangerous to, to, to disconnect faith and blessing and unbelief and discipline from the Lord. Let me give you just a few scripture references, okay? Because the New Testament still ties these two things together. And, and both of which will be meted out in different ways, various ways. Doesn't mean that if you're faithful to the Lord, he's going to give you an abundant crop next year if you're a farmer, okay? But it does, the core of that is sin has real consequences, both in this life and in the next. And that's not just the payment for, for making a bad decision. That, that that is a vertical line with who God is and what he's created us, or how, how he's created us as his image bearers. So let me give you a few, a few references. Um, Luke 19, uh, I won't read it. We were actually here probably back in December um, in a sermon. But Jesus is talking and he he prophesies of the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened some 70 years later. And he says, because they, speaking of the Israelites at that time, because they did not recognize the time of their visitation, the destruction of the city is going to come. Right? There's going to be real physical consequences because of your unbelief. 
what he's saying is because after I die and am raised, because the majority are not going to believe, this city will be destroyed. There's real consequences linked to unbelief. Hebrews is full of examples. Let me just give, give you one or two. Hebrews 2, 1 through 3. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. For, for the reason, this is Hebrews chapter 2, for the reason that Christ is superior than the angels and, and, and all that that entails. Because of that, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard so that we do not drift away from it. Drift away from what? Drift away from the gospel. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, he's talking about the Old Testament law. When the Old Testament law was given, if all of those things received a just penalty, how much... How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? He speaks later of, uh, of the, the hand of the Lord's discipline. Because he's, he's writing to people who are failing to believe the gospel. They're, he's writing a letter to a church that's failing to believe the gospel. He says, you've not resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. He says, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been cha- trained by it, Afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. James 4, 1 through 4, James says, says, the reason for the conflict that's within you in the church, the real suffering that you're experiencing, it's because of your unbelief. It's because you love the things of this world more than you love God. Paul writes to the Corinthians, after he explains the, uh, the Lord's Supper, he says, many of you are sick and some even died because you come before something that the Lord has said is holy and you treat it with disrespect. You treat it with disregard. So the New Testament still ties our, our, our faith and our unbelief with the blessing of the Lord and with, with, with discipline. Now let, me, let me footnote this so that I'm not misunderstood. The breadth of Scripture teaches that while sin has real consequences, both, both here and now, and in the time to come, faithful obedience doesn't garner a life without hardship. Doesn't garner a life without hardship. This isn't health, wealth, prosperity. That Christianity, that in Christianity, unbelief results in suffering and faith results in blessed suffering. Look at the Beatitudes, Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin. Right? Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Jesus said, uh, or Paul said, through many tribulations, through many sufferings will enter the kingdom of God. Romans 8, the uh, uh, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Right? Well, what about our sufferings then? I'm not, I'm not trying to over-spiritualize everything and say that every, every thorn in your finger is a direct result of whether or not you sinned or somebody else sinned. But the trajectory of our culture, of our Christian subculture, is, is to relegate that into sort of a back corner and to, to ignore that. And that's risky. And that's what you see here in the opening section of Ruth is you see a family who's, they're not in blatant idolatry, but they're in a casual disobedience. When you read stories in the Old Testament, you read about 
the horrific situations within Israel. And, and you look at it and go, man, how did they get there? It's not like one day they were faithful and the next day they woke up and said, well, hey, you know, we're just going to throw everything out the window and we're going to go live however we wanted to. It was a gradual slide. And isn't that happen, how it happens with us? It's a gradual slide. It's a gradual slip into unbelief. And yet it's in the midst of this barren soil of unbelief that God grows the precious flower of His sovereign grace. Before I get to that, let me mention the last one. Well, let me go back to Elimelech and his family. So Elimelech and his family, they're not in blatant uh, rebellion, but it's a casual unbelief, which is so dangerous for us because it's so easy for us to get caught up in the midst of life to make decisions sort of like they did out of mere, sheer pragmatism, right? I mean, what, what's the question? There's no food here. And we'd, we'd, we'd applaud them, and the rest of the world would applaud them. Hey, there's food over there. Go get that food, right? I mean, it's good to feed your family. It's good to feed your kids, put shelter over their, their head. That's a, that's a good thing. Well, those people worship a different God. Eh, it's not that big a deal, right? What is it that the Lord has said? And that's, that's where we'll oftentimes find ourselves. That's where, where our culture will find itself. Right? A, a slave to the God of pragmatism. Because oftentimes following what the Lord has said is costly. And it, and it doesn't make sense. It's risky. It would be risky for Elimelech's family to stay in Bethlehem. And, and, and you know, sh- should, should the Lord have brought repentance to them to say, look, we're going we're gonna to stay we're going we're gonna to repent. We're going to seek to follow the Lord here, even though it may mean we die, rather than go there. They, they, they didn't know. They didn't know where life was going to happen. But they followed pragmatism. And that's dangerous. It's risky. The, the sixth one. This didn't come from this from, from what we read, but I think it's worth pointing to. Later when Naomi returns to, um, later when she returns to Bethlehem, and, and the, the, the women are kind of gawking at her, and she and Ruth, this Moabite you know, daughter-in-law of hers that have come back, she says, don't call me Naomi. Naomi means sweet. She says, call me Mara. Mara means bitter. Now there's a play on words there. There's a, there's a play on words, clearly. But she's also telling us something about what she believes in, uh, about God. Here's what she says. Uh, it's in verse 20. She says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Why? Why? Why should we call you bitter? Why should we call you Naomi? Is it because you're upset? Is it because you're angry? She tells us, she says, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. God has dealt bitterly with me. She says, not because I'm bitter. She doesn't say that. She says, it's because God's dealt bitterly with me. Why do you think she would say, she would she believe that God is bitter with her if she'd been living a life of full obedience? Wouldn't her response be more like Job? She says, call me Mara, for the Lord's dealt bitterly with me. I think she recognizes she recognizes her casual unbelief and she struggles. 
She struggles with that. She points to the Lord at various, various points during this first chapter. Right? And, and we'll see this as we move next week. We're going to talk about Naomi and Ruth and the community that they go back to. This could be a wonderful time, I hope, of, uh, of encouragement, uh, of, of faith. But Naomi talks about the Lord here. But just because somebody mentions the Lord in passing, or maybe even has a right theology, doesn't necessarily mean that they're walking in faith. Right? So there's, there's more to this story, again, that points to unbelief. We'll, we'll, we'll touch on some of that next week. But the point is that Elimelech's family went to seek the blessing of life. And in casual disobedience and, and unbelief of, of God's covenant promises. And it was dangerous for them. It was dangerous for them. And it resulted in, in death, resulted in, in consequences. But even in the midst of this barren soil of unbelief, God can grow the precious flower of his sovereign grace. Look at verse 6. It says that, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the land of Moab. For she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in, the, in giving them food. You see this first sort of bud of God's sovereign grace. You're going to see it again at the end of the chapter. But this is a point where the God makes an appearance sort of subtly in the background without actually coming out and saying it. Here's the barrenness of the situation. I mean, Naomi's, she's in this foreign country. She has no children. She, she has no husband. She has no, no sons. But further than that, she has, she has two foreign um, uh, uh, daughters-in-law. And that's going to have social consequences when she goes back to Bethlehem. That's going to have real consequences for her. Not only that, but for a woman in her position to, to be without... Uh, but without sons, without, without a husband. She's, in, she's sort of the bottom of the barrel here. You know, she's she's going to go back, and even though she has land, technically, it's not really her. She can't really do anything with it. She can't really farm it. She is destitute. And, and yet, for some reason, even though she's been surviving in Moab, going back to Bethlehem, where the Lord has brought food, is better than where she is. There's hope there. The Lord brings about hope at just the right time. And we'll see that it's just the right time because there's faith in Ruth. And that's going to move us into the rest of the story. But what you see is God, God here, he's not left her. He's not left this family. In the midst of their unbelief, he's not left them. He's uncompromisingly dedicated to carrying out his purposes to redeem a people for himself, even in the midst of their unbelief. So let's, let's take a minute, let's, let's ask some real hard questions. Where are you in your Christian faith? Are you at a point in your life where you, you know the tenets of the gospel? You maybe can explain it. But the truth of the matter is there's, there's casual unbelief there. God doesn't come into play in the course of the week. Your life looks just like the culture that you live in. Where are you in that? Are you, 
Are you moving in the direction of mere pragmatism? Are you, are you asking questions and making decisions in your life primarily based off of what's practical and, and, and what you in your own heart see as good? See, Elimelech, Mark reminded me of something last week. The names in this story are so important. Elimelech's store name means God is king. But what we see in the beginning of this story is God really wasn't king in his life. He's God king of your life. I'm not asking, do you know the gospel? But are you following him? Are you following him in faith? Secondly, are you, what are you experiencing right now? I know many of you are going through hardships. Some of those are directly related to, to unbelief. Some of those are directly related to sins. So, some of you have felt that in the past and maybe question, well, can God do anything with me right now? Maybe you're, maybe you're more like Ruth in this story and you're trying to be faithful. You're, you're, you, you maybe not know everything of Scripture, but you're trying to be faithful and the Lord's put somebody in your life that's in, in disobedience, and you're wrestling with that. Lord, where are you? Let me tell you that the Lord has not left you. The promise of sovereign grace is that it's sovereign and that it's grace. That God is working behind the scenes to bring about his purposes. And he's not left you. Now, if you're in disobedience and the Lord is disciplining you, there is responsibility on your part. Repentance and faith. Don't tarry. Don't, don't wait. The author of Hebrews says, in, in response to that disciplining of the Lord, he said, therefore, let us strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Look at your life and see, wh- Lord, where am I being disobedient? And Lord, Break me over that. Better that you break me over, uh, over the tender hand of your disobedience, uh, over your tender hand of discipline, than over the hard ground of unbelief, of continued unbelief. Know that dark times are not wasted times. Those are sometimes the, the most fruitful because they send us to rely on God. You know, Jesus was once asked, he was approached, I believe it was after a man had died, and, and Jesus was approached by some people, and they said, for whose sin did this man die? And Jesus doesn't point the finger, but he says, it's so that the grace of God might be displayed. So that the grace of God might be displayed. In the midst of that suffering, even in the midst of disobedience, even in the midst of where you may be being faithful, but you're caught up in somebody else's disobedience. The Lord says, these things are happening so that my grace might be displayed. Stay faithful because I'm not done. And lastly, know that God runs to meet us in the midst of our sin. We may come to face the realities of, uh, of our own sins. And we say, well... Uh, Lord, how can you do anything with me? I mean, here's, 
Here, here's my mess. I was, I was confronted with that myself personally this past week and just said, Lord, how, how can you do anything with me? And in my studies, I'm reminded that, that God doesn't just sit over in a corner and wait for me to come crawling back to him. He runs to meet me where I am. I want to read this, this quote from, from Ian Duggid. When I read it, I was like, oh, I wish I'd had that in my head. And I, I thought, well, how can I, how can I kind of phrase that? And I thought, yeah, I'm just going to read it. Um, because he, he, compares, he compares the unbelief of Elimelech's family with, with the gracious work of Christ. So let me read this. I'll, I'll give a closing statement and I'll pray. Doug, it says this. He says, In Christ, God comes running to meet us. Where where Limelech left the place of famine to seek a false blessing in Moab, Jesus Christ left the glories of heaven to bring us a true blessing on earth. Elimelech and Naomi sent themselves into exile from the land of promise, trying to build their own kingdom rather than waiting for God to do it. Jesus, though, went into exile from his Father's presence so that he might rescue us from our own kingdom building and grant us a true and living future in his kingdom. The God who empties us and strips away, however painfully those precious things in which we are trusting, knows what it is to be stripped of all his possessions, left alone and abandoned by his friends and hung empty on a cross. Every tear of loss that God inflicts on us is a tear whose cost he himself understands. Folks, God is delighted to feed us and to fill us when we return to him. The the blessing of hope here is that, that Naomi goes home to Bethlehem and, and she says, I'm empty. I, I went away full, I'm empty. And the end of the story, she says, I'm full again. The Lord has made me full again. God delights to fill us and to feed us when we return to him. When we realize the emptiness of, our, of all of our gardening attempts and we embrace his sovereign grace in our lives. Let me pray for us. I will be dismissed. Father God, again, I just I ask that you would take the crumbs from your word and you would, you would multiply them. That we, would, that we would read this story and we would sympathize with Naomi, maybe more so than we had originally thought, not as just a victim of her circumstances, but as someone who's trapped in unbelief. We wouldn't stand over top of her as a judge, but we would come alongside her. And that that her story here, the story of her family, would arrest our hearts. Our hearts would go before the examination table and say, Lord, is there any unbelief in me? I know many are, are going through suffering right now. And Father, I pray that, that we would all ask that question, that if we're going through suffering, we would ask the question, Father, is there, is there any unbelief in me? Any, anything here that's, that you're trying to show me, that you would make that clear, that we would repent and we would run to the cross, the soothing salve of the gospel would be applied to us, that we would trust in you 
even when it's costly, even when it's risky, risky against the, the modern idol of pragmatism. And Father, you would enter our minds more frequently throughout our day, throughout the rhythm of our life, that the, the drumbeat of the gospel would be heard steadily in our hearts and would echo out of our lives to others. Give us courage to take the gospel to other people who maybe are in the midst of suffering. Not that we would oppress them and say, well, you're, you're, you're in sin and this is why this is happening. We would come alongside them, ask them hard questions and, and where you reveal unbelief. May we, may we encourage faith. Not that we would lord over them, but Father, we might come along beside them. Father, where we are weak and we are struggling, may you give us faith like Ruth. Thank you, Father, for your word. I thank you what you've taught and encouraged me this week. I, I pray that it would sink in in all of our hearts. Give us courage through the rest of, of this next week and bring us back again to worship you again next Sunday. Father, it's in your precious Son's name that I pray. Amen.